House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. The House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren. Co-hosting today is the great Eric Shapiro. How you doing, Mr. Warren? <laughs> Mr. Warren, oh, I'm getting yeah. old. Turn 59, <laughs> beginning of the end. Oh, 59, is that, didn't you have a recent birthday or something yeah. up or something? No. no, it just happened, so now I'm working on number 60, so. Oh, well, happy birthday, okay, so you're in the last year of your 50s. Yeah. Okay. But how, do, how does it feel? Well, you know, if, 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 if I was, had a lot of spare time, I would probably feel depressed, but I'm not, I just, I'm too okay, busy. Okay, keep busy, I mean, I think that's good advice for everyone, just stay busy. Yeah, it's better not to think about it, you know, it's not a big deal. Just not. I outlived both my parents, so. Uh, I mean, that's I mean, that's key, yeah. Yeah, well, I guess that's what we're supposed to do. You're shooting far, yeah, that's the <laughs> ideal way for it to work out. Yeah. I always shoot far, come on. Yeah. <laughs> now, speaking of shooting far, we've had, uh, we have a great guest who's got a new book out called Chicago After Stonewall, and it's a history of the LGBTQ Chicago from Gay Lib to Gay Life, and that's St. Suki de la Croix. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for asking me. I'm coming up my 70th birthday, so I shouldn't worry too much. Oh, oh okay. You sound, you sound like you're 20 years younger. Thank you. I love a man who lies. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm here. That's why Al keeps me here. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, no, you do have a very young sound to you, that's for sure. Chicago after Stonewall. Um, what made you decide to put that together and write that? Well, I, it's, it's actually a, the sequel to something else I wrote, or it's part two of something else I wrote. Back in 2012, I had a book published by the University of Wisconsin Press called Chicago Whispers, A History of LGBT Chicago Before Stonewall. And I started in, it started in 1653, uh, before, I know Chicago wasn't there, but at the time, that was the first accounts of the um, feminine uh, Native Americans in the, in the Illini tribes. And these accounts were written by the French explorers, like um, Marquette. And I started there, and the book goes through 300 years of homosexuality, which is a long time. And I ended the book on the night of Stonewall, even though Stonewall didn't happen in Chicago. I had to end it somewhere. So I ended that book by writing about what was happening in the Chicago bars on the night that Stonewall was happening in New York. Now, Chicago after Stonewall, I picked up from the day after Stonewall in Chicago, and I went through, and it covers six years up to June 1975. And it was a really strange time because... Um, there wasn't really, there wasn't really any gay newspapers then. There were a couple of leaflets, a couple of pamphlets, a little newsletter, um, but not much information was coming out. There was a, a newspaper called the Chicago Free Press. No, that was not that. I forgot what it's called. I remember. But it only had 26 issues, and it was very, um, oh, the Chicago Gay Crusader, that was it. There was only 26 issues over the course of three years, and it was very much, it, it was one of those, I call it a nice try, you know. But it was like an old hippie newspaper in, in design and everything. Um, but I ended Chicago after Stonewall in June 1975 because a newspaper called Gay Life came out, and it was a professional newspaper. So from that moment on, Chicago had, many, many gay newspapers, and if you're a historian, you can look back and go from June 1975, and there's, a, a, there's an unbroken stream of information until today. But those first six years at the beginning of the 70s were really underreported, and I set out to um, find out what really happened. So I tackled it from other issues. I mean, the mainstream press 
reported on homosexuals, but of course they, they didn't like us very much because we were perverted and sick and, and all that garbage. But um, so what I did, I went to student newspapers, like Roosevelt University, University of Chicago, and I started looking at those things. And gradually I had more leads. And I spent a lot of time in Northwestern University in uh, Evanston because they have incredible archives of gay pamphlets and, you know, it's just endless. I spent, actually spent months going there every day. It was like a job when I was living in Chicago and making photocopies of all this stuff. So it's really an extension of my first book. Um, there may be a third one. I don't know. It, it depends. It depends about what kind of mood I'm in. Uh, it's, so do you feel like a lot of this history has been, been lost or a lot of it's just not around? Uh, a lot of it is lost. But if you know where to look, I mean, I, I'm not a historian. Um, I'm a reporter. And a historian does things in different ways. They have a set way of doing things. A reporter is going to sell their grandmother to get the story. So to get information, I, I had to do some, I had to look under rocks. You know, I mean, I, there's one thing I did. I went to a medical library in Chicago and, and they wouldn't let me in because I never had a student card. And you, you have to use everything you've got. And my British accent in Chicago works wonders. <laughs> Goodness for Danton Abbey, Jane Austen crap. Because I went to the bar on the desk and she said, I'm sorry, we can't let you in. You're not a student. I said, oh. I'm terribly sorry. I've come all the way to England to look in this library. What a shame. And if you stand there long enough, even though you hear yourself sounding like a complete idiot, but if you stand long enough and talk, they cave in. You know? And this woman not only let me in the library, she actually helped me do the research that I wanted to do. I guess I'm charming. <laughs> If only she knew the real Saint Suki. <laughs> yeah, there's an accent. I've always thought about that, how uh, self-aware you guys are of your accents. It's got to open doors. Um, it sounds it's so lovely to listen to. I'm losing it, really, because when I go back, which is less and less, less often, they think I'm American. You're kidding me. Yeah, well, you could have fooled us. They hear, they hear an American accent. Wow, okay. I, I have lost it a little bit, you know. Now, this book is basically about Chicago's response to the Stonewall riots in New York, what happened afterwards. Okay. Did you find, was there a kind of the similar response in Chicago? Did they, was it sort of a... a, a, a... It wasn't reported in Chicago at all. Oh. press never mentioned Stonewall. It was the only place in Chicago anybody knew anything about Stone, the Stonewall riots were in a small Mattachine Midwest newsletter, and somebody wrote something that they read something in the New York Times. So it was not a big event at all. And, um, but of course, at the time, I think what people will forget is that there were, there were riots everywhere in America, you know, because of the Vietnam War, and, and women were protesting for the Women's Liberation Front, and, and also uh, the Black Panthers. And um, I do write in the book about the, the connection between the Black Panthers and the Gay Liberation Front. They were working together for a while. How people in Chicago, gay people in Chicago, were uh, felt about Stonewall at the time, if, they, if it made a big impact on them? Well... I don't think it did. I mean, some people must have, a year later, in 1970, they'd had the first uh, celebration of Stonewall, so somebody must have noticed it was happening, for them to organize the first celebration. But when it first happened, nobody knew about it. I've met people, um, older people, that say they, they never knew anything about Stonewall until, until years later. You know, but maybe they were closeted, you know. But um, So when do you think Stonewall started to make an impact? I think in Chicago, I think people started to take notice when the first march happened. Because the first 
uh, one in Chica- the first celebration in Chicago in 1970 was it was really a political march. It wasn't there wasn't any floats or anything, or you know I don't think there were drag queens or anything. It was it was a political march organized by the Gay Liberation Front. They weren't known for having a great sense of humor, you know. So. But then after that, the second year it happened in 71, you started to see floats and people started to look at it more as a celebration of being gay. And as the years rolled by, it became more and more celebratory. I mean, there were, you know, floats and everything and people dressing up. And and then, of course, it became very corporate, which is what it is now. Yeah. Well, you say that... um the gay uh, movement, or um, they actually had a um, tie-in with um, the Black Panthers. I find that interesting. I, uh, was it just the concept of both fighting for rights, or what, what was it that connected them? It was. Huey Newton was a great supporter of gay rights, and he made a very famous speech. The whole speech is in this book. I put the whole speech in there. But there were other members of the... Black Panthers that were anti-gay. I'll tell you something, one Panther who was uh, very gay supportive was the mother of Tupac Shakur. Oh, wow. Yeah. I her name now, but she actually attended uh, gay meetings at uh, various sort of Black Panther conferences. She was very supportive. Wasn't it like Shakira, Shakika? Um... That's right, yes. That's Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she was very supportive of gay rights, but there were members of the Black Panthers who weren't. Eldridge Cleaver was anti-gay, um, and others were too. And as the Black Panther movement fell apart, um, so did their connection with the gay movement. Because there, there was gays uh, on the podium speaking at the Philadelphia Conference, which I think, the Black Panther Conference, which I think was in, I think, 1970. So, yeah, no, there were surprising, surprising connections. I was actually surprised when I found all this out. So there were, uh, there were connections, but it was never 100% stable or holistic. Like, not everybody among the Panthers was on board, but there was a, a period where, where it worked. Generally, the Panthers were on board. Yeah, I quite often say, you know, I, I wish there were a group like, like uh, the Black Panthers now in today's times or... Um, you know, you know pe- pe- people always look at me like, oh, my God, really? <laughs> and I'm like, well, you know, the right needs something to be scared of. Well, uh, it's uh, Antifa, right? Yeah, well, please. Yeah, <laughs> it's a whole different uh, You know, such thing as Antifa, you know. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It doesn't exist it's at true. all. It's just some Republican thing, you know. I think... I think I, I think I agree with you. I think it would be nice to see the Black Panthers back. You know, they did a lot of great work. But they were completely, that's when police, you know, police were shooting them as well. Getting shot yeah. all over the place. Yeah. So things have not changed that much. So what do you hope people get out of the book? What do you, what do you hope this book does for? I wrote this book because it really pisses me off that gay history has been ignored. And the, the contribution that gay people have made uh, to, to the world and to society is being brushed under the carpet. Now, when, I do, when I do my talks, I don't do them anymore, but I do, there's one thing I say. that When we go to uh, the Vatican and, and see the Sistine Chapel, and you see all these tourists there looking up at the Sistine Chapel, you need to tap them on the shoulder and say, I hope you enjoy this gay ceiling. Right, right, right. And this belongs to us. And we're sharing this gay ceiling with you. But you have to remember, this is a gay ceiling. Because Michelangelo was gay. Same with Alan Turing, you know, who cracked the code, the German code in, in the Second World War in England. You know, people just do not accept what we've contributed. There's a sense of uh, erasure. It's like the gay component of it is taken, taken out of it. That's right. America's really good at rewriting its history and ignoring. Yeah. And in uh, present-day Chicago, I'm really curious about these newspapers. Is there a number of gay newspapers at the moment? 
No, I mean, because of the pandemic and, you know, the climate, gay newspapers are disappearing everywhere. It's hard for newspapers to sustain, yeah. One, Grab magazine is still going, and um, Windy City Times, which is the serious newspaper that I used to be the associate editor of, it has gone digital now. So, no, they're not... I, I don't know, you know... And I, I feel bad about that. I feel bad that our culture is going and our clubs are closing down, the bars are closing down. And it's hard to tell whether that's just happening anyway or whether it's because of the pandemic. But then I had to tell myself, you know, as an old man, I have to, I'm aware that I cannot cling on to the past. And everything changes. And, you know, there'll be another way that the gay community is going to go. I don't know. But, you know, I, I, I'm nearly 70. And, you know, I see this happening, and I, I, miss, I miss, you know, our culture disappearing. But, of course, maybe it needs to disappear for us to move on to the next stage. I don't know. And you also mentioned earlier something that I think is a big part of what you're saying, which is the corporatization, right? Like, you just, uh, Pride Month with this last month, and, uh, I hear, I hear so many people echoing in your community that uh, it's been corporatized, like it robs it a lot of, a, uh, of a lot of its meaning, and as you're saying, a lot of its culture, the culture gets bled out of it. Well, that, yeah, that's, what, that's what's happening. You know, I, I, before I left Chicago seven years ago, I went to a Pride March, and there was a, a beer company had a, uh, a truck in the parade, and on the side was a man and a woman kissing. Oh, forget it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Talk uh, about but, I mean, it was a gay parade. It was actually about life, yeah. you know. <laughs> no, I just think it was a little bit insensitive. And, you know, so it, it's a sh yeah, it's, it's a shame that's going. And the, there's always politicians on there. And, of course, we need politicians. But, you know, I personally think they're all crooks. But, so it's not my parade. It's everybody's parade. So... Right, it gets it yeah. gets watered down and and uh, yeah, yeah and I, I don't know. I mean, that, you know, now we're in the military. Now we can get married. Now we can have kids. It's like, uh, be careful what you wish for. We got right. Well, so, uh, so in other words, yeah, the fact that uh, it sounds like a lot of the sentiment is also that you used to be a legitimate yeah. counterculture, and that changes when you become That's culture right. culture. I'm, I'm, being yeah. inside of, and being exacted by people is, well, it's not very interesting, is it? You don't feel very radical. <laughs> right. That's so fascinating. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's happening. Uh, it's happening broadly among artists in the current moment. I feel that to be an artist, uh, you don't, you're, you shouldn't be countercultural. You're encouraged to be a more of a propagandist for this or that. And then that's what it's turned into. So, I, I can only understand what you're saying personally from that vantage point. But it yeah, I mean, an, I think an artist's job is to is to produce things that nobody else is producing. You know, things new and inspiring, and when you've got something to say. But if you have everybody saying the same thing, it's um. I mean, what happens here in Palm Springs? And there's nothing wrong with this. I'm not criticizing anybody, but it's a lot of um, uh, people my age. And they were hippies in the 60s, wanted to change the world. Then they disappeared into corporate America when things got real, like the rent was due. And, and then they retired, and now, now they're bored with ponytails and uh, doing art in Palm Springs. There's nothing wrong with that. But I look at these paintings, you know, and it's a lot of the same, same thing, you know. I sometimes think I'm going to kill the next abstract artist I come across. I used to go out, I was an entertainment uh, photographer, event photographer, and I, I was at a drag show one night, and it was two hours late, and I thought to myself, you know, if, any, if anybody comes on and does Whitley Houston smoking a crack pipe, I'm going to kill them. Then I realized yeah. I was. So I thought, this is the time anymore, so I stopped taking photographs, you know. I got to breaking point. Yeah. It's easy to get to breaking mm. point. You know, no, I, 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 I enjoy art and ideas that I've never heard before. And what do I want from this book? I want 
people to, I want people to find out about their history and I want people to go out and do something, maybe, because the first book I wrote, Chicago Whispers, they did a, a theater group did a show about it, about uh, one of the chapters in the thing about black history. So they had uh, people singing blues, gay blues songs, and so I would like something like that for this book too. I want this to inspire people to go on and do something. Because one of the things I hate is people that don't do anything, you know. I love Yeah. Oh, that's great. It sounds really good. So you, you want to give cultural yeah. infusion for the book. To just like, here, here's where we came from. This is what we're about. It's all stimulating and powerful. And don't, don't allow it to get sold right. out or lost. That's what I want. But who cares what I want? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Well, there, 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 there is something about the the mainstream trying to put um, us gays into a into a package, like almost present us or make us fit into uh, mainstream life. And I think that's sort of a that that's sort of where uh, if, we, if we don't tell right. our stories, they will tell our stories for us. And I don't yeah. want to hear their version of yeah. our story. So that's why I do this. This is this is our story, and I want I want people to read it, especially young people, you know, because they have a certain amount of freedom now in some of the big cities, you know, and, and they're somewhat accepted. But um, I want them to see what it was like years ago, and what other people had to go through for us to gain that acceptance. You know? I think it's a good lesson to learn from the past. Yeah, did you see the Netflix Peter Thatchell? Um, they done something about him. I know him. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we had him on the show. Um, Hating Peter, Peter Thatchell is what it's called. It just came out, and um, it kind of talks about his life in his own words about how many times he was beat. And I, I think it's very important that that sort of stuff gets gets. Yeah, across he dedicates his whole life to activism. You know, I did, yeah. I did meet him once, and. Um, talk to him. He's a very interesting man. The fight seems to be continuous, you know, because it's two steps forward and one step back. Well, did, you, did you learn anything that um, you were surprised by, that you didn't expect to learn when you were researching? I never expected the connection with the Panthers. That mm. surprised me a lot. And um, I'm surprised how... I mean, what happened was, after Stonewall... The GLF started at the University of Chicago. It was the university students that started the movement in Chicago. They were the first to have gay groups. There was a gay group in Chicago, the Mattachine Society, but it was very old-fashioned at the time. You know, the Gay Liberation Front was a vibrant. It came out of the, the anti-Vietnam War thing and... And all that, and women's liberation, and all that stuff. So it was very, it was young, and they had the energy. But the people in the group that was in Chicago before the Mattachine Society, they were older. Okay, they were wiser, but they were also burning out. They've been doing it for years, you know. It needed a burst of energy, and I think Stonewall was that burst of energy. I go through the whole thing. Um, is there something you would see that should have been done differently? Uh, I, if I could go back in time, hmm. I would, uh, I wouldn't listen to psychiatrists. Yeah. Why gay people were persecuted in the first place. It was religion. And then in the 19th century, it was psychiatry. Yeah. They were the ones that kept the military in the Second World War. They were the ones that said we were insane. They wrote lots of books about it. There was money to be made from being homophobic. And various psychiatrists wrote anti-gay books and made a, made a lot of money, you know, until 1973 when the World Health Organization decided that homosexuality wasn't an illness anymore. And the headline on one newspaper said 20 million gays cured. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
you know, and also in Norway, that, and was it Norway? I think it was in Norway, when homosexuality was uh, an illness, according to the, well, uh, the um, well, all the medical things, it was just an illness. In Norway, gay people protested by staying home from work and sending in, say, phoning up and saying, I'm sorry, I'm sick, I'm a homosexual, I'm sick. <laughs> 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 I'd like to go back. I'd, if I could go back, I'd get rid of psychiatry. Half our problems would be gone. Yeah, wow. It's always surprising to me the lengths that young people went to, you know, and the risks they took to so that we could all have, you know, a better life. That mm. all surprised me. And also, the thing, another thing that surprised me is I have names in here of actors that were in Chicago, but of course, as I said before, they were all at university in the beginning, and what happens at the end of university? They disappear. They go to work. They move back to the different towns. They don't stay in the same town. Students were gone. So there's all these names in here, in this book, that we don't know now. We don't know who they are. We don't know where they went. I tried finding some people but they've just completely disappeared. So these are unsung heroes in this book. And I'd like to talk to some of them, but I'm damned if I can find them. You know, somebody called Bill Dry was a very active in Chicago, a student, and then did at Northwestern University. But what happened to him? I suppose when he got his degree or whatever you get at university, he just moved on. No. Hmm. What surprised me, everything surprises me. Intelligence on young people. I look back when I was that age, and I wasn't, I wasn't involved in the gay movement. I was involved in other movements. But, you know, they were just wonderful people. I just think they're unsung heroes. And I want, I want them to be remembered and not forgotten. Hmm. How, how do you think the response for the book's going to be? Um, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, it, it's selling. I mean, there's that response. I, I, I don't know how people are going to respond to it. I do tend to, I must admit, when I've finished a project and it's published, I, I've moved on to something else. I mean, I do interviews like this about it. But I've moved on. I'm doing something. I'm doing another book at the moment. Oh, so where, what do you move on to? Is it kind of the same same area, or do you move on to something totally different? I just finished a novel about Palm Springs. What I do is I do a history book, and then to take a break from that, I do I do a novel or write something else just to stop myself. Because I mean, it's very intense when you're doing history, you know because it has to be so accurate, and there's a lot involved in it. And uh, so I always take a break and write a novel. So I have written a novel about Palm Springs, but I've also started doing a book with Rick Carlin. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, um, it's a kind of encyclopedia of gay bars in Chicago. He asked me if I would do this with him. I think now because gay bars are closing down, you know. I told him, when he asked me, I said, this is a bigger project than you think. And he said, I really want to do it with you. I really want to do it. We have uncovered almost a thousand. Wow. Yeah, because you're saying encyclopedia, so in other words, historic, not like a guidebook for tourists. Although it could, it could have that too for the contemporary ones, but yeah. Uh, no, it's not a guidebook. It's, uh, it's a thing about all the bars in Chicago. The, uh, the earliest one I've got is about, I think about 1915, two lesbians opened a coffee shop in Chicago. It was pretty outrageous. And then there was another one. There was some more in the 20s and in the 30s. There were some, especially on the south side of Chicago in black neighborhoods, there were a lot of jazz clubs where gay people went and you could dance. And they had drag shows. Hmm. All up into the 20s in the Second World War, there was a lot of gay bars, you know. And um, 50s, 60s, 
right up until now, but we have almost a thousand gay bars. And we're going to write about each one of them, everything we know about each one of them. But of course, a lot of them, we just have names and addresses, you know. And we want to make it a picture book. So there's going to be a lot of bar ads. I've been collecting, people have been sending me matchbooks and anything to do with bars. But it's, it's a history book. It's not, uh, I mean, I hope it's going to be fun to read as well. How, uh, how long did you say you've been working on that? I've only been working on it about three months, but I collected a lot of stuff, information about this in the beginning. I'm sending him information and he's putting it into some kind of order. And um, I think... I think it'll be ready by um, June next year. I mean, it, I, I know it's a bit fringe as a Chicago gay book, but um, I, I, th I think I want to I want to bring back people's memories. The bars were a lot of fun. I'm discovering a lot of interesting things. Like um, they used to have something called the banana swallowing contest. It's <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how they did that, but they'd have to, I want them to bring it back because I have to go to a banana, and I think I can swallow more banana than anybody else. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Good at that. So, <laughs> I guess a lot of the bars are, are going also because of the, the internet and the apps and all that grinder stuff, right? Yeah, people meet in different ways. I mean, I'm very glad that I don't come from this generation because I don't think I would like to go online and meet people. I just don't. I have to see people's eyes. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, no, if I went to a bar, I, I talk to people. I mean, it's very weird talking to you because I can't see you. But it's like a phone call, right? But I like to see people's eyes and, and just converse with people in that way. But to go online and meet a complete stranger, I just, I don't think I could do that. I wouldn't be interested. Well, it certainly changed the way people interact. It's, it's certainly different, um, for sure. I just, I, I just, I guess that's taken away a lot of the bars, but that was a lot of the community was the bars and the, and the places to meet. Uh, the gay bars were the community centers, you know, before... Before Stonewall, there were no community centers. There were no very few gay groups. But after Stonewall happened, everything just exploded. I mean, people started uh, gay religious groups, the gay Catholic group. Um, everything started up. And uh, there was, uh, in Chicago, there was a, a Weight Watchers group called the Lavender Elephants. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, so things, things went more out, out in the open at that point. Yeah, people started forming their own groups. I mean, it was like, okay, the Catholics won't accept us. We'll start our own Catholic group. And that's what happened. Gay gardening groups. I mean, everything. Plumbers. <laughs> and, and gay Catholics, they wanted to, to punish themselves. That's right. They just, <laughs> they just sat around with, I don't know what gay cats. <laughs> it's like the gay Trumpies, you know. They just <laughs> right, they, they can't can't help themselves. Yeah, uh, they don't have partners because they oh my themselves. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I make a mental note. It was forty-four minutes there, Al. Uh, but I think that's great. I think it's really good work. I think that it should be done because a lot of the young people are going to have no idea. I don't think they know the community and what how people relied on each other differently back back then. I mean, they don't have that now. It's not the same. I've done talks. I did a talk at Truman, Truman College. And I did, well, first I did uh, Columbia College, which is a liberal arts college. And I, it wasn't very good because the people there were not um, worried about their hairstyles and anything else, you know. And then I did another talk at Truman College, which is a blue-collar college, and, and the kids there were great. They were asking really interesting questions. As they walked in, I walked up to one of the women. She had a pair of jeans on, and I said, I am making a citizen's arrest. <laughs> <laughs> I 
1973 and I'm arresting you for cross-dressing. And she said, why? I said, because you're wearing jeans and they're zipped down the front of them. In Chicago, that was illegal until 1973. Oh, get out of here. Wow. Yeah. That was cross-dressing. Wow. I know. It's crazy stuff. Everybody was wearing, all the women were wearing jeans, but they only applied the law when they raided a lesbian bar. Oh, I see. You know, you had to wear three items of female apparel. And then three um, Lat Latino drag queens were arrested, and they went to court, and the law was changed. They all turned up in court in drag. Oh, wow. Oh, that's and a good story. Yeah, and, that, and that changed in 1973, which is right about in Chicago after Stonewall, you know. But no, I mean, um, no, cross-dress. You're saying for women to have gone out in public to follow the law, they had to have three items of female dress? Is that what you just said? That's right, yeah. And when they, one, yeah. one woman told me they used to raid the lesbian bars, and when the police came in, they would run into the bathroom, because back then, a lot of it was masculine and feminine women. Yeah. Would, they would run in the bathroom and swap shoes with their femme girlfriends or swap a shirt, because... Uh, a woman's shirt is buttoned down a different side to a man's shirt, or it was back then anyway. Right. Uh, they would just change, so they had three, while well, the police would battery the door down, they would be changing into their girlfriend's clothes. Uh, it was just absolute. It's complete uh, Gestapo stuff. Yes. Yeah. But also in, in the book is the 1973 case when I think 26 police got arrested, some of them sent to jail, for screwing money out of uh, gay bars. There was a huge court case. Oh, so and they a, were going and shaking them down and get, like, like the mob? Yeah, and, like, and the mob would shake down as well. So Right, right, right. And some of the bars uh, were paying $300 a month to the police. Just to be left alone, or just, to, just for whatever reason. I've spoken to people that worked in bars, and they, their job was to hand over the envelope to the cop that came in. Oh, man, yeah. A call in 1973. Another guy I talked to, he was in a, uh, he worked in a, a, a mob bar that was owned by the mob in the 60s, and his first day there, he was a drag queen, but the first day there, the owner showed him three guns strapped under the counter. And he said, if you get any trouble, shoot them and lock the front door. Oh, wow, yeah. And we'll deal with it. So it was pretty rough times, you know. Yeah. But no, in 1973, as I talk about in this book, there was a court case and the 26, I think, cops were taken off to jail. Mm. They, they, took, they took thousands and thousands of dollars from gay people. Wow. You know? They were an easy target, you know. And they owned all the bars. The mob owned all the bars. I think the last bar that was owned by the mob was in the 90s, in Chicago. Mm, okay. Working. The mob was still there, you know, and it's still corrupt, but nobody plays, I don't think anybody pays the cops off anymore. No, there's no, there's no real reason to anymore. No, I don't, I don't think so. I don't know. There's one bar in Chicago. It's closed now, but it was very raunchy bar. And I was told they made a very generous donation to the police fund at Christmas. Hmm. And whether they were asked to or not, I don't know. But they could have raided that bar at any point in time and something was going on. <laughs> <laughs> I love that place. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, so where do you think? Uh, the, so, what do you think? Where do you think gay community is going to go now, or what do you think it's going to happen in the future? Then, from something I, like now, I don't know. I mean, I live in Palm Springs, which is over fifty percent gay. Right. I, I live in a, a bubble. What's happening? I mean, the there's different issues now. The trans issue is most prominent issue at the moment. And uh, we don't get, I don't think there's that many. Well, no, there is actually where I live. 
um, there's a transgender health and wellness center, which my husband volunteers at, um, doing publicity and fundraising for them. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Kind of, I've never really been involved in, in the gay world because I've always worked for a newspaper and I've been writing about the gay world. But you can't join, you know, if you're a reporter, you can't join any groups, really. You know, you have to stand outside of it and watch it to a certain extent. So I don't know what's going to happen. I, I don't know. It's interesting. I'm letting it unfold. I just, just observe and watch it. You know, I don't do anything else. It's interesting how, like you said, the trans issue is central now. The same thing is repeating where you have cisgender people writing alarmist books, warning you know, to create fear around trans people. It's the same thing you said was happening like with the psychologist making money in the 50s writing about gay people. It's the same, same sort of impulse. It is. Yeah. It's the same sort of fear, too. Right. It's, it's exactly yeah. But, I mean, the trans issue is difficult because, I, you know, I've stopped talking about it because whatever you say is wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very uh, delicate to talk about. We've talked about it a lot on here. It's very, you have to navigate very uh, consciously. Yeah, it is because, I mean, these people have been persecuted all these years. And, you know, it, it's the same with the um, women's movement, which I actually write about in Chicago after Stonewall because women became separatists. Women's separatism, and they wanted nothing yeah. to do with gay men, lesbians wanted nothing. Yeah. And, and there was all that, and that was vicious. In one lesbian paper in Chicago, they asked women if they were going to the gay pride march, and one woman said, no, I won't go because it's run by faggots. Ooh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're seeing that same manifestation with the, the, the trans issue. It's, uh, you have the same split dividing line among uh, different groups that have differing levels of... Uh, Oppression or marginalization. It's, it's mind blowing. Yeah, it is, and, but it's not helpful. But yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't get anywhere where they intend to go, anybody where they intend to go. It pushes people away. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you're older, I mean, it's different for me. I worked for the papers, you know, for 30 years or whatever. So I've seen this whole thing progress. But for the regular gay guy who's in his 60s, he doesn't understand this. Right. You know, and right. he is berated for asking even simple questions if they're not phrased in the right way. So I don't, yeah, I don't think it's helpful. But the other thing is, I also think like the women's movement, they had to go through this period. You know, they had to go through this angry period to do this. And I'm yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point, because when you're assimilating, when you're coming from a minority position into the broader culture, it's inevitably there's going to be friction and diff different outgroups are going to clash. So from an aerial view, it makes sense. But like you said about berating, that's something Al always says. It's like, there's no need to get angry. Like there, It really hurts your own cause when you start telling people off and just getting irate with people. Right, you can expect somebody in their 70s to understand this because they've grown yeah. up most of their life with two genders. Correct, yeah. And they knew that there were some people that were in between somewhere. Now it's exploded, you know. And, and they're put off. I know people that are put off by the anger. And even yeah. I stopped talking. I've stopped. I'm talking about it now. But I stopped talking about it. Yeah, yeah. I don't blame you. It's, very, it's also very tied up in your own personage, your own ability to find, you know, like you said, there was, for most years, two genders and some people were in between. Like, to the extent that a given individual has the fluidity within themselves, they can navigate it. But if somebody is just more gendered, it's going to seem really shocking, and it's going to be a big jolt. So, yeah, I agree. It is. Uh, I'll get off it because it's difficult to talk about. It is. And whatever you, literally, whatever you say is wrong. I mean, people will complain about what I've just said. Oh, yeah. And also me being a cis or cis-ish, a friend recently called me, like, I'm, I'm, I've been told not to ever talk about it. <laughs> like, I should talk about it because me just talking about it is offensive. So you, you can't win. No. Yeah. No, I try to think gender doesn't exist, you know. I mean, that's I mean, it's, which is funny because that's a political position in and of itself, but I hear you. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, there's a lot, a lot of truth in that. It's, uh, 
then then all ships can rise with that tide. It's just it doesn't have to exist. And maybe I'm just bitter because I don't have really nice legs for a try. <laughs> now we're getting now we're getting somewhere. Yeah. That would be, <laughs> be a yeah. That's the only good thing I have is face legs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you had the idea of this pirate picture. Yeah. Well, you know, I, yeah, I just, I really don't understand the anger. That, that's sort of what surprised me. That's just, you know, why. I, I understand the anger. I just don't understand where it's going. Well, right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's sort of what I mean. I just that's don't know. They try, to, they try to sometimes try to stop uh, the gay parades. I would have thought, uh, go, yeah. to a, go to something Republican thing and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> But they say there's a lot of racism in the gay community, and there is. I just don't know if stopping a parade is the way to deal with it, but if that's what they need to do, that's what they need to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I fully understand the anger. I just think it should be applied to the right place. You know, some places are more transphobic than other places. Yeah. Or or applied at all, right? Instead of just being anger where there's shouting on the internet, it can be applied to any sort of action so you can play it through and see the outcome. So I think that's the real problem is that it's uh, a performative anger in a lot of cases. Right. Yeah. Right, yeah. I I, I don't know. I just... Yeah. I know my friends that, that, are, that have transitioned don't... Um, they're, they're not involved in all that. They're just... Oh, likewise. Thank you for saying that. Because I've felt the same in my social circle. It's, it's ironic that they have other voices screaming on their behalf in a lot of cases where it's like, yeah, they're just off living their lives. Yeah, but, you know, I don't agree with all gay people, you know. I happen to think that yeah. one of the... I mean, I hate gay... I'm most gay movies I can't watch, you yeah. know. I, yeah. yeah, I've heard that before. Well, it's, I can only imagine, I mean, the amount of button pushing that must go on. And like you said, it's not always... Uh, your own community that gets to tell the story. Right. Now, we have to all tell our own story. I mean, I do write, I've written about, in, in Chicago, I've just done more. I've written about, um, but there's a whole chapter on transitions. And I thought when I was writing, I thought, oh, God, someone's going to complain because I yeah. use, use the word transvestite, and that's probably wrong. But this is of the period, you know? This, this is about then. It's in context, yeah. A history book. This is what happened then. Not you know. You can't go back and rewrite it. I can't go back and use the appropriate language to describe something that happened in the early seventies. I have to use the language at the time. And one thing I do a lot is to I put articles in there from newspapers because I like them to look back and see the readers to look back and see the the voices of the period. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's me, not me analyzing stuff. I, you know, I don't want to do that. Not what I think or what, what is people do. Yeah. This is what people wrote then. This is what they said. I've done a lot of um, things about the, I don't know what you call them, the advice columnists. We call them agony answering them. Uh-huh. People, because they were very influential, you know, and they, she was, Ann Landers was homophobic. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's right. Things about gay people. But that's what people saw. They saw the Ann Landers column, you know. So. Yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no point in sanitizing anything, like any content or language. Like, it doesn't make people less coarse on the inside if you sanitize the surface. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, it's one thing to be polite and appropriate and speak uh, sensitively, but um, you can't really weaponize that toward making people compassionate so so i think it's really good that you share that stuff i'm not i'm not rewriting history that's not my job here you got it yeah yeah no well said i mean that it sounds really good it's just the facts it's just what people lived you know yeah yeah and that's important my history i've heard i've heard accounts of stonewall that are just stupid (laughs) yeah 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 you know, um, okay. So now, uh, is this book going to be available everywhere? Like I see, of course, it'll be on the uh, Rattling Good Yarns uh, website. But is it going to be everywhere too? Yes, it is. If, it's, if you if you go to the Rattling Good Yarns website, I'll sign a copy. 
but you can get it from Amazon. You can actually order it from, I, I can't believe this, you can order it from Walmart. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> oh, that's on, awesome. On their website, I just advised people on Facebook, I said, wear something ridiculous and go and buy my book in Walmart. Oh, nice, yeah. Yeah. That is, that, hey, hey, there's no two ways about it. That's making it. Your thing is a Walmart. That's, uh, you're hitting everyone. No. Yeah. Well, they haven't got it on the shelves, but they got it on the website. You could order it. So. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, tempted to, I'm tempted to go in Walmart. I've never been in Walmart, but I'm tempted to go in and order the book. <laughs> yeah, you saw, I mean, Walmart needs all the counterculture it can get. So. No, I, um, think, I think you can get it at Target as well. Oh no! There you go. So you're. Uh, that's good. You're. 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 Uh, in all the right institutions, they need more of this content. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have a. When I go into, I'm not even kidding. When I go into Walmart, I have a panic attack. It's like being at a uh, a, co- a concert at Madison Square Garden. It's just like people are just title waving over you. Um, so it's good you've never been there. I would stay away. Yeah, it's not a good place. What's, what's this I hear about the Castro diaspora? Do you know anything about that? I do not know. I, I've heard that everybody's moving from San Francisco to Palm Springs. Oh, is that what they, they're calling it? Yeah, I know a lot of people are leaving San Francisco. Just cause, uh, I mean, we have an affordable housing thing here that just never quits. So um, that probably is a component of it. But I didn't realize they were going to Palm Springs particularly. That's funny. Yeah, I think, I think well, I don't know. It could be just a press thing that somebody made up somewhere. But I mean, there's... Okay. I do know the prices have gone through the roof. Oh, it's yeah, it's really, really bad. And I'm constantly, I, I have a newspaper up here, so we're constantly reporting on affordable housing. It's just completely stuck, and it's been that way for decades now. So it's uh, it's it's kind of a daunting issue. Well, this is fascinating, and, and again, thank you very much. And uh, thank you for doing the book and, and talking to us. And uh, um, again, our, our, the book we're talking about is Chicago After Stonewall, and that's a history of the LGBTQ, Chicago from gay life to gay lib. And um, our guest has been the author of that, St. Suki Delacroix. Thank you for being here. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for asking me. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.